0: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to our worship here on this wet and windy Sunday morning. Welcome to those of you who are new to Essex Church, where this community of Kensington Unitarians meets. Welcome back to visitors who've been here before. Welcome to those of you for whom this is your spiritual home, or one of them, perhaps. May we all find something this morning of of that which we seek, be it a time of peace or some new insight or chance to reflect, whatever it is that we feel in need of, I invite you to rest for this moment on the forming edge of your life. Let's just resist a while that headlong tumble into the next moment. Let's claim for ourselves a brief time of stillness and calm amidst the bustle of everyday life. It's good to make time for awareness and gratitude here together in a peaceful place. We worship here in freedom, with conscience unconstrained, with freedoms won for us by great spirits in ages past. So may this chalice flame, this symbol for Unitarians and Universalists the world over, may it today shine in gratitude for the freedoms gained by our ancestors and their past struggles. when we look at the title of this service, Nonconformists and the Great Ejection, I'm, I'm now sort of standing here with some trepidation because I'm enjoying my subject. I've, I've been considering history all week. And, you know, when you really get into something and you get more and more enthusiastic about it. And then when I looked at what I'd written, I thought, oh my goodness. Is it, is it possible to convey Uh, some of this enthusiasm. Who knows? If it's not, this is a lovely opportunity to just sit back and rest and know that you can't do any of the jobs on your to-do list. But maybe something will get sparked off in you. If we look at the the front of the order of service sheet, you'll find a quotation about the English and religion from the French philosopher and man of letters, Voltaire. If there were only one religion in England, there would be danger of despotism. If there were two, they would cut each other's throats. But there are 30, and they live in peace and happiness. So said Voltaire. Mind you, I mean, Voltaire had been imprisoned for speaking against the French aristocracy. Rather than languishing in jail, as he as was likely to do over there... He suggested exile to London as an alternative. Can you imagine? (laughs) And so that was his alternative punishment that he took. So, yeah, it's hardly surprising. Voltaire became an Anglophile. He loved England. And he admired our constitutional monarchy, which did indeed, I think, look quite pleasant in comparison with the behaviours of French absolute monarchs, of Louis XIV and the like. Centuries of struggle had led to this 17th century position of England as a country with 30 religions living, as Voltaire claimed, in peace and happiness. People had lost their lives to win the right for others finally to have the right to worship freely as their conscience led them. So to understand this complex religious picture in England, two useful words are dissenters and nonconformists. When Henry VIII broke with the Pope and the Church of Rome, establishing instead the Church of England, he set off that series of developments that would shape English history, English politics, perhaps the very character of the English nation. And none of this happened in isolation, of course, because England was then, as it is now, closely linked with other European nations. This was all part of the Reformation that established the Protestant churches in Western Europe. There's not too much more of this bit. (laughs) In England, the Civil War linked politics and religion. For the people who most wanted Parliament to have power over the monarchy were often are also the people who dissented from the rules and the beliefs of the Church of England, known as the dissenters, and the Puritans were, were part of that. During the restoration of the monarchy, a constitutional link between monarch and state in this country was formed, linked in with the recognised church, the Church of England, and those who would not conform to the rules of this state church became known as the Nonconformists. These dissenters and nonconformists are the forebears of congregations such as ours. And when I look around our congregation, it's with some pride because that spirit of nonconformity, of dissenting, of free religious inquiry, well, isn't that here with us still to this day? This reading is is by Fred Kenworthy, a character known to some of you, who wrote this uh, little pamphlet uh, back in the 1960s, 300 years, 1662 to 1962, Unitarians and the Great Ejection. There there, there are a host of Unitarian historians who love their subject. I think Fred's love of this subject comes across. I'm going to slightly uh, skim through it. But, uh, you know, we know the story, don't we? That King Charles II the, the arrived back, the one who kept his head. And he... Who knows what went on, really? But the bottom line was that the, the, the new parliament which was definitely, so definitely saw itself as his boss, very quickly brought in an act of uniformity. It was one of many, but it was by far the most notorious. 1662 it was passed. It made legal, Fred says, only one form of religious polity and worship. No place was found in the established church for Puritan conviction. What in this modern age we should call a totalitarian form of religion, was set up. Only those who who were ordained by bishops could be ministers, and all clergymen were required to give their unfeigned assent and consent to the contents of a prayer book, which denied some of their most cherished convictions. Not only ministers, but all teachers in colleges and universities, and all schoolmasters and tutors in private families even, they were all required to conform to the liturgy of the Church of England. Ministers and teachers who failed to comply with these requirements by St. Bartholomew's Day, twenty first of twenty fourth of August, rather, sixteen sixty two, they were to be deprived of their livings or their appointments. In our words, out of a job. As a result of the act, large numbers of clergymen gave up their livings, being forbidden by conscience to accept its terms. Now, tradition speaks of the 2000. Recent research has shown that the total was actually smaller, and that among those whom we regard as the ejected were actually some who'd left earlier in 1660, when uh, they could see the writing on the wall But nonetheless, some some number, possibly around 2,000 of people, clergymen, left their livings. And as Fred says, many among them were the keenest and the best educated, and they left the Church of England. Fred goes on to speak of the Unitarian links with, with that date. 1662, and we'll go on to that in the next part of this uh, service. If you turn back to the front of your order of service sheet, um, you'll see the front page of a document that's available to read online. It's the collected farewell sermons of a number of clergymen who lost their livelihoods in what became known as the Great Ejection? This year, 2012, is the 350th anniversary of the Great Ejection. And unless you're a keen historian, uh, these collected sermons are probably not a recommended read. <laughs> But having a look at them, 42 sermons collected together in the year 1663, so just the year after this happened, when I looked at them, it it gave me firstly a sense of just how significant this religious change was at that time. And secondly, pretty obviously, just how much our world has changed. Yes, we live in a different world now. And yet here in England, we still are exploring some of the issues that were set in motion back in 1662. Much changes in human life, and yet much stays the same. Two examples that come to mind are the fact that we have 26 bishops of the Church of England sitting in the House of Lords, a body whose reform has been much discussed, but never yet acted upon by all political parties over many years. And our education system funds around 4,600 schools that are linked to the Church of England, either voluntary controlled or voluntary aided as they are known as schools. And debate continues to this day about whether a child's faith should be considered, or rather a parent's faith should be considered when deciding who gets a place in these schools. Only a couple of years ago it became apparent up in a Lancashire school that a child from a Unitarian family was being refused a place in just such a school because of the faith of their parents. And here we are in the 21st century. Now. This was just one child in just one school in a system that often has to reject children because schools are oversubscribed. But it is a reminder, I think, that faith still plays a part in the workings of our state to this day. But, well, back in 62, faith was a major, major issue. There was Charles II, regained the throne... He, with such leanings, albeit hidden, towards Catholicism, and yet he still promised that he he promised a liberty to tender consciences and that no man would be disquieted for differences of opinion in matters of religion which did not disturb the peace of the kingdom. And there really were, at the restoration of the monarchy, people who thought that Puritanism would be allowed to exist in this newly restored monarchy. But as we heard in the uh, reading from Fred these pamphlet earlier on, uh-uh, it was not to be. The act of uniformity was to shape religion in England for centuries to come. But don't let's fall into the trap of thinking that any of those ejected ministers were Unitarians. It's true, and I've got a lovely, lovely book that I know some of you uh, will know, but not everybody. This is a Unitarian Heritage, an architectural survey, and uh, it's a lovely collection of old um, places of worship. And uh, many of those old congregations owe their foundation to the men and women who were loyal to ejected ministers, but none of them can really be described as Unitarian in their theology. Some of the the key terms to know when you're looking at this uh, period of history. So to be Episcopalian was to have um, the rulership of, of the bishops, so the Church of England... An alternative to them were the Presbyterians who felt that there should be equality amongst ministers and that it should be the ministers themselves that ordain um, one another. So we've got the Presbyterians that we hold um, links with. Then there were the Independents or the Congregationalists. And then were the Anabaptists who became the Baptists. I mean, these are all words that are still around today today. What happened next in the story after the Act of Uniformity was that things got worse. This was the time when, because those ministers were popular, they left their congregations. What happened? Some of their congregations went with them. There was nobody left in the pews on a Sunday morning. Or they started new congregations somewhere else. So a whole series of rules were passed, one of which was that um, the Five Mile Act, which meant that Um, one of the ejected ministers could not do any preaching within five miles of their original congregation. That was then extended to, they couldn't do any preaching within five miles of a a town centre and then any meeting that had five or more people there had to conform to the, the book of prayer of the Church of England. You can feel the rules getting tighter and tighter there was considerable upset in this country Eventually, that led to the Toleration Act of 1689, which allowed nonconformism once again to flourish, to flourish. And I think that was for the betterment of our society. But remember, until the 19th century, nonconformists could not hold public office, they couldn't attend universities. And um, even the actual ownership of non-conformist chapels was at times challenged in the courts, so that a congregation would suddenly find that um, the Church of England was trying to get one of its chapels back. But that unbroken line, I think, does exist between the non-conformist and the dissenters of those days and what then became our free thinking, conscience dictated congregations of today. There was a link, an unbroken link, with those dissenters and nonconformists and Unitarians today. And we now, in the 21st century, well, we've got 21st century issues to deal with, and there are plenty of them, I believe. But those Unitarian values of freedom, of reason, and tolerance. I hope they can guide us now as they actually inspired those people centuries ago. Amen. As we prepare to leave this place and to go out into the world once more, let us give thanks for the brave souls who are prepared to think new thoughts and so help humanity to progress. Let us give thanks for those brave souls who are prepared to stand up against tyranny and injustice, that humanity may continue to make progress in creating a better world for all. Amen. Go well and blessed be.